About 15, almost 16 years ago now, I entered a whole new stage of life, and I'm loving it. I became a grandfather. It's pretty amazing. Now we have 11 grandchildren, six girls, five boys, ages 14, or, uh, 15 down to four, and uh, it's, it's really a lot of fun. Are there any other grandparents in the room? Yeah, good, okay. We have a lot in common, but there are distinctions among grandparents, and I'd like to begin by pointing out one that hopefully can set up what we're gonna do uh, for our time together. Um, and that has to do with how does a grandparent get their name? Have you noticed that there are very few grandparents that, that play it by the book? Hello, grandmother. Hello, grandfather. Very few are actually named that way. There's all these slang and all these other names that come up. I'll tell you how I first uh, noticed this. Um, I actually spoke at a college commencement. And before my address was the address by the valedictorian. Now, let's all be on the same page. The valedictorian is officially the smartest person in the graduating class. So I was quite surprised when this young woman began her valedictory address by thanking some people that helped make her education possible, uh, specifically her family who foot the bill. And I remember she said, I just want to start by saying, I couldn't have done this without my family, my parents and my grandparents, so thank you, Mom, thank you, Dad, thank you, Bibi Babu, and thank you, Mama Mima Muma. And I'm like, what in the world? How did the smartest person on the planet come up with Bibi Babu and Mamu Mimu? You know, and I realized, okay, this is part of how grandparents get their names. Now, one is through your family history, your ethnicity. There are certain words for grandparents if you are of German extraction or Dutch or Asian, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the other one is basically how the Bibi Babu, Mamu Mimu, how that stuff comes out is it's the very first words your grandchild says in your direction. And you say, he spoke to me. He called me, and from then on, you know, your 22-year-old college graduate, it's just amazing, isn't it? Well, I hope you think so, because I've made a life study of the names people give their grandparents. I might get a few more from here. I got a couple the last hour. These are actual names of grandmothers and grandfathers that I've collected over the years. I'll start out with ours. My wife, Kathy, is called Gigi. I am called Pop-Pop. So Gigi and Pop-Pop are the Butterworths. Here we go. Nana, Bubba, More More, Morfor, Bestamore, Bestafor, Fifi, Peppy, Gimma, Gimp, Noni, Gabba, Tutu, Gamma, Munzi, Tiki, Fishy. <laughs> Didado and Da Di Da. Here's a great one. Oma and Omaha. <laughs> Mutt, Bomb Bomb, Big Bapa and Teensy Bapa. I always think, which would be the worst of the two? Would you rather be Big Bapa or Teensy Bapa? 
Boompa, Booma. Here's some grandparents that have logged a few miles. Groggy Mama and Groggy Papa. Bumpa, Doo Doo. Ooh, ooh. Babaha, Jaja, Tatatu, Papatu, Sako Bean, Mimo, Peepo. Some good friends of mine in Texas. She's Lolly, he's Pop. <laughs> Mamo, Cuckoo, Pip, Poo, Yaya. Just read the script here, Bill. Dammy and other Dammy. Buddha Belly. Yeah, yeah, yin yin, gung gung, goon. This kid just gets right to it. Money Grandpa. <laughs> Grammy, G Daddy. Here's Grandpa with the truck, Grandpa without the hair. Big Moo Moo, Big Baba, Bibi Mamu, Bibi Baba. Another couple from Texas. Cow Daddy, Cow Patty. <laughs> and finally, the finest grandparent name I know, Your Majesty. <laughs> so everybody has their own kind of grandparent name, but part of the joy of being a grandparent is you get the privilege of passing on to a new generation some things that you've learned by being decades older than they have. And hopefully you get to pass on this truth in, in a very loving manner. Now you're going through the, the New Testament book of 1 John, and John, although not writing to his grandkids, has a kind of parental feel to the book. Matter of fact, if you open to 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 4, but look at chapter 2, verse 1. He begins by saying, my little children, I am writing these things to you. Now, he's not writing to literal children, but he's calling his adult audience his little children. So there's that whole feel of love and kindness and camaraderie, and camaraderie intimacy. And then even more interesting to me, the very last book a verse in the book, 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from anything that would take the place of God. So there's this whole kind of theme of an older person giving counsel to a younger person about what's really important in life. The overarching theme of the book being that whole idea of joy, but very close to that, is the kinship there is between joy and love. John is often called the apostle of love. And chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, uh, unwrap a, a, just a wonderful, almost laundry list of characteristics of love in a very practical sense. So follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 John chapter 4 uh, from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God. The one who does not love does not know God, forgive me, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and then believe the, the love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If you're like me, you always crave a very practical way to put more uh, academic concepts into practice. And the beauty of this set of verses in 1 John is that John really does give us uh, some bullet points, if you will, on a practical approach to love. And so as we go through these points, I encourage you, number one, just to jot them down. But number two, think about how it relates in a love relationship that you may be involved in right now. Uh, the, uh, the most easy and obvious one, if you happen to be married, is how it relates to your marriage. If you're a parent, how it relates between you and your kids, maybe a grandparent and grandchildren. But Pull it out beyond that. We as Christians are called to love one another no matter what. And so there are love relationships uh, in a Christian sense that can be uh, at your workplace, in your neighborhood. People who are seeing the love of Christ in you and in a winsome way it is drawing them to make uh, the Savior of the world their personal Savior. So think about this in practical terms if you can and uh, this will be much more uh, meaningful to you in our time together. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, verse seven. Here's the first thing I would have you write down. Number one, growing love is a daily decision. Growing love is a daily decision. Chapter four, verse seven begins the paragraph by saying, beloved, let us love one another. Now, a lot of you have hung around the church for a long time. You've been very familiar with your Bible for a long time. So you know the Bible lingo for something like, let us love one another. In Bible language, this is called a command. Love one another, all right? It's not a suggestion. It's not, well, if it feels good, it's not, well, if you had a good night's sleep the night before and a healthy meal, it's simply a command. Love one another. Now, the reason that is significant is as follows. As I read the Bible, nowhere in the Bible do I ever read God asking or, or commanding us to produce something that is purely on an emotional level. 
You'll never read a verse in the Bible, and God told the people, cry. And the people responded. <laughs> I mean, you just can't cry at will. I mean, even the actors on TV, you know how that works. Right before they turn the camera on, they, they pluck a nose hair. They're, they're not crying at will. It, it, it has to be built up. You, you can't just produce an emotion. Now, this is significant because in our culture, love is considered to be an emotion, period. In God's definition, emotion is part of love, but it's only part of it. If you're married, there's the whole physical aspect of love. And then there is God's command to love one another, which means that love is an act of the will. It's volitional. I choose to love you whether I feel like it or not. I choose to love you whether you look more radiant than you've ever or you got beat by the ugly stick. I choose to love you. So that means that I am the one who's making the decision to love you no matter what condition you may be in, which raises the awkward issue if you happen to be called to love someone who is, how should we say this, unlovable. Got somebody unlovable in your life? Don't raise your hand. They might be right down the row. But if you have someone unlovable in your life, you realize what a challenge it is to wake up every morning and decide, I'm going to love you no matter what you're doing right now, no matter how you're treating me, no matter what you look like, no matter what's going on, I'm going to choose to love you as an act of God <laughs> because that's what God has asked me to do. Parents see it all the time. I think back to my five kids who are now adults uh, far, far away, but man, especially in the summertime, we'd put them all in the van, we'd all travel together, I'd speak at all these different places, and I've had all five of my kids down on the front row, and I'd come to this place in the talk, you know, you gotta choose to love even when someone's unlovable. Now take a look at my five kids. I got unlovable stories to tell you all the way down the line. We can start with the one with the stinky diapers all the way up to the, you know, the pre-adolescent boy with the room that smells like bad cheese and we got the teenagers that just speaks for himself. You know, and this goes on and on. There's the one who's 38 and still living at home. And, you know, you, you got all this stuff where you are choosing to love someone who may be in an unlovable place in their life. Well, I did this one time, and a friend of mine was in the room, and he heard this, and he came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, you really go after your kids. I said, okay, now relax. You need to understand. I ask them all in advance, do you mind if I tell this story? Oh, Dad, I think it's funny that my room smells like bad cheese. Sure, go ahead, tell everybody. Okay. So it's like I'm not catching them off guard. They give me permission. But then he said something I had not heard before. He said, well, listen, I, I have an assignment for you. Why don't you gather your five kids and ask them if there's ever been a time in life where they had to choose to love you because you were in love, unlovable. Well, I thought he was kidding. I remember I laughed. <laughs> I said, I'll do it, but you know. So I remember I got the five kids together. I said, you know, my, my friend's here and he asked this stupid question. This won't take long. Um, have you ever had to choose to love me because I was unlovable? And like, and like six hours later, when we had to break up the meeting, I mean, they were just getting started. It's like, holy mackerel, are you serious? Uh, one of my favorite examples. Um, 
I grew up here, but eventually I ended up in Southern California. I worked for a wonderful, wonderful Bible teacher named Chuck Swindoll. So I worked for Swindoll for seven years, and then I went out on my own. And when I went out on my own with five little kids in Southern California where housing is just obscenely expensive, he said, I don't need to live here. We can move somewhere else. And so we found this lovely little town in Northern California that was much more affordable. It was in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. Beautiful little town, great name. Grass Valley, California. That's right. Grass Valley, <laughs> California. All right? And, I mean, it was very pristine back then and very, very upstanding. And, and I remember the first spring for Little League in Grass Valley. And my oldest son was 10. I said, okay, Jess, we're going to take you to Little League. Here we go. And he was very excited because um, what, his favorite major league team was the name of his Grass Valley team. And, of course, he had come from Fullerton. And when you play Little League in Fullerton in Southern California, you get a uniform that is an exact replica of the Major League players. I mean, if you were the Fullerton Phillies, you would get a uniform that looked like what they wear right down the street at the park. I mean, you, you would think it was a pro baseball uniform that had just been left in the clothes dryer too long. It just shrunk down uh, to where little kids could wear. It was great. So he moves up the Grass Valley, he's his favorite team, and the coach says, come early next practice to get your uniforms. And he can't hardly sleep the night before, and he's so excited, he goes to practice, coach says, okay, everybody get in line to get your T-shirts. And Jesse, my son, darling, naive Jesse, he turns and looks at me, and he goes, Dad, T-shirts to wear under the uniforms. <laughs> and it's like, man, this kid is clueless. So he gets his T-shirt and he realizes that's it. And I, his little lip is trembling. Dad, go talk to the coach. You know, and I go over to the coach. I said, you know, is it really? Is this it? Is this the uniform? Well, you know, you got to go buy him a hat. But yeah, this is it. So what's your problem? What are, you, are you from Southern California? You're all alike. You know, you just get over it, you know, and, and stop stealing all our water. You know what I'm thinking? <laughs> so I was to discover Little League on a budget. First game, it gets even worse. I'm out there in the stands with you guys. You know, we're behind home plate. The ball field's out that way. I'm sitting there with the rest of my kids. And the, co and the coaches, the adult coaches, come to home plate. Let's have a good game. And to my surprise, they turn and face us in the stands. And they start going, uh, I'll take you, sir. Uh, I'll take you. Uh, I'll take you. And I remember saying to the other kids, what's going on? And one of my boys goes, Dad, they're picking umps. I said, they don't hire umps? No, Dad, they pick them right out of the crowd. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're going to pick me to umpire a game where one of my boys is on one of the teams? How do they expect me to be fair and honest? I mean, if he's pitching, they're all strikes. I don't care how foul it looks. If he hit it, it's a fair ball. You can't put me under this kind of pressure. So I can't sleep all week. I'm up all night, seven nights. I know they're going to pick me on Saturday. I know they're going to pick me on Saturday. I know they're going to pick me on Saturday. I get there Saturday. The coaches, let's have a good game. I'll take you, sir. You. And he looks right at me. I'll take you, sir. Well, fortunately, I had seen that finger point at me a thousand times in seven sleepless nights. I was ready. He says, I'll take you, sir. And I remember I leaned forward on the bleacher and I said to him very succinctly, Ich kann nicht verstehen, was mit mir los ist, aber Mutti sind immer noch kaputt zusammen. Which is German, and if you speak German, you understand I just said, I cannot understand you because I believe my mother is broken. 
And the poor coach, he's like the deer in the headlights. He's just kind of staring at me. And finally, he looks at my other four kids and he goes, your dad doesn't speak English? And as the kids later retell this story, they say, that was the magic moment, Dad. We're looking up at you and we're thinking, do we choose to love the unlovable or do we let this guy fry? And bless their little hearts, I mean, they look at me and they look at the coach and they look at me and finally they just go. And the coach goes, well, I'm sorry, kids. We can't have someone down there that doesn't speak English, you know. And he moved on to someone else. I didn't have to ump all season. But my poor kids, they're in school, and they're like, your dad doesn't speak English? What does he do for a living? And they'd say, he's a speaker. I was like, oh, my goodness. Choosing to love the unlovable. Now, that's pretty softball compared to what some of us are dealing with right now you may have truly a difficult situation in your life right now and having to choose to love the unlovable. But that's the starting place. That's what God inspired John to say as he developed the qualities of love. Love one another. Growing love is a daily decision. Okay, here's the second point. Number two, growing love is distinctively demonstrated. Growing love is distinctively demonstrated. Skip down a couple verses to verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. By this the love of God was manifested. Circle that word manifested. It, it's the word that we're using in our bullet point to be demonstrated. Uh, what it means to have a distinctively demonstrated love is the opposite of, you know, I think about you all the time and I have great loving thoughts about you. I just never get them out of my mind into expression. Well, that's not the way God's love comes down. It's expressed. God did more than think up in heaven, you know, I love you down there, you people. He, he showed, he proved his love when he sent his son, Jesus, to earth. Sinless, perfect Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin, for flaw, for dysfunction, for addiction, for anything else that's got you by the throat in your life right now today. And when Jesus died on that cross, he paid for that sin. And then three days later, he rose again to prove that he was the perfect God. And he's in heaven now. And he says, you can be a person that can enjoy that perfection, that quality of being forgiven if you simply accept what I've done for you. Because I did more than just think loving thoughts for you. I proved it. I demonstrated it. And in that, you and I have the ultimate perfect role model of what it means to demonstrate love. Now, granted, many, if not most of us, will never have to actually lay down our lives to prove our love to someone that we care for. But what can we do to express love to the person that we genuinely love? It has to go beyond just thoughts. We have to be able to express it. 
Now, in marriage, for example, I find it amazing. There is a, a book that was written quite some time ago called The Languages of Love by Gary Chapman. And this book continues on the bestseller list all these years later because it's tapped into something that is really quite profound. The premise of the book is you have a way that you speak love to your spouse. And your spouse has a way that they speak love to you. And there's usually one of five options. And people gravitate to one of those five. Rarely do you have a couple where they both speak the same language. And that's where stress can enter a marriage. Here are the ways he describes what he calls the five love languages. One is words of affirmation. Another one is spending quality time together. Another one is receiving gifts. Another one is acts of service. And the final one is physical touch. All right? Each of us have a language that we use to connect with our husband or our wife that speaks one of those languages. And what is really interesting is if you can't figure out what language your spouse speaks, you're just not paying attention. Because we just seem to, uh, on autopilot, we speak the language of love that we want to hear. And so that's why if my language of love is quality time, I keep, sending, I keep setting up big blocks of time with my spouse, only to find my spouse saying, you don't ever say anything affirming to me. What do you mean I don't say anything affirming to you? Look at this, I got a whole block of time here for you. I don't want a block of time. I want to be affirmed. What, you don't like to spend time with me? What, you don't like to affirm me? What, are you a communist? What are you a... You know, next thing you know, there's bloodshed. No, not bloodshed. But you see what happens is we get so wrapped up in our own language, we don't hear what our spouse is saying as that language in response. So those are five different ways in a marriage that we demonstrate love. So if you've never thought about that before, there's a good assignment. Go home today and figure out what language are you speaking? What language are you speaking? What language would you like me to speak? What language would you like me to speak? Why are we talking in code? Why can't we just get this out in the open? Good lunchtime discussion. Okay. Number one, growing love is a daily decision. Number two, growing love is distinctively demonstrated. Number three, growing love digs deeper. Growing love digs deeper. If you would, for time, jump all the way down to verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us that we have confidence in the day of judgment. I'm not sure what version of the scriptures you're reading. My version uses this word, by this, love is perfected. The word perfected gives the idea that love is perfect, and in that way, it's poorly translated. What would be more understandable to an American audience is by this, love is growing. By this, love is deepening. By this, love is stronger now than it was yesterday. Now, that sounds schmaltzy and it sounds like an old love song, but it's a genuine, legitimate question that I will pose to you. This person that you love, do you love them more today than you did six months ago? Do you love them more today than you did six years ago? Do you love them more today than you did yesterday. How would I measure that? Well, you go back to the previous point. How are you demonstrating it? Is it active? Is love practical and working out 
in your life? And are you understanding that that's the way God's love works? Love is not stagnant like unmoving water. Love is a river that flows one way or the other. You are either drawing closer together in love or you're pulling further apart. And so part of digging deeper, to tap back into what we just said in the last point, part of digging deeper is learning to appreciate the differences that we have in our lives, personality-wise, you know, whatever it is that, oh boy, I had to learn to accept that because that just wasn't part of my routine, okay? I'm very neat, my spouse is very not neat, okay? I'm, you know, real extroverted, they're real quiet. You know, I'm, you know, very organized and they got piles of stuff all over the place that they say they know what everything is, but I just call it trash. <laughs> See how we got a little work to do there, digging deeper with our love. Okay, number four, growing love decreases doubt. Growing love decreases doubt. I really love this. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Again, let's replace perfect with growing. There is no fear in love, because growing love casts out fear. Fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not growing in love. Now, I did this backwards so that you got the answer before I even asked the question. But just pretend for a second you didn't know what that verse said, and let's play the classic game word opposites. I say hot, you say cold. I say black, you say white. I say salt, you say pepper. I say love, you say hate. But John is saying here the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. Why would he say that? Well, I think the reason that he says it is because implicit in, the, in God's definition of love is the concept of trust. Just write that in the margin, trust. That I don't have to have doubts about you, I don't have to have fears about you, because growing, deepening love means I trust you completely. Now, this can be a painful subject because many of us have endured or are enduring a love relationship where there's been a violation of that trust. And so it's a very slow process back to that whole idea of being able to trust the other person completely. Which, by the way, brings up one of the words the Apostle Paul mentions, and that is that love is patient. There's a time factor involved many times to re replace and rebuild this trust. But if you are of the fortunate that do not have a violation of that trust, that's what decreasing doubt is all about, that I can go down deeper and feel completely comfortable with that person uh, because God's love includes that whole, whole idea of trust. So John puts a very interesting ribbon on the end of this passage by the last two verses in the chapter. Verse 20 says, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 
I think what uh, amazes me about that passage is I think about Jesus' words in the Gospels where he says, I'm asking you to love your enemy. And many of us just think, and I, I don't know that I can do that. They're my enemy. How can I possibly love my enemy? Yet, it oftentimes goes unsaid, but there's another whole group who would honestly admit, you know, actually loving my enemy sounds easier to me than loving my brother. You know my brother? You know what it's like to have grown up with my brother? Or do you want to know how evil my sister was? Or do you, you know, I got a much better shot at loving an enemy than I do that family I grew up in. Honestly, there are many of us that would think that right now. And that is kind of the, uh, the acid test that John ends the passage. Do you love God enough to love your brother? So three words to take with us. Again, let's put it in the context of marriage just so we keep it practical. If you happen to be young and newly wed and early in your marriage, here are three words of counsel for you. Love takes work. If you've been married so long you had dinosaurs as attendants, here's three words for you. Love takes work. If you're single and anticipate language, uh, marriage at some point, but it's just not there right now, here's three words for you about love. Love takes work. I know it's not romantic. I know it's not the stuff of a great rom-com, but it's how God defines it. That we make the daily decision to demonstrate love and in doing so digs deeper and decreases the doubt God's love, love takes work.